I want to share a passage of scripture with you, one of my favorites, and probably one of yours as well. It's from Ephesians, the second chapter, beginning with the fourth verse. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Isn't that a great word? Let's join our hands and hearts together. We're going to pray as we do Sunday by Sunday, holding each other's hand and symbolically holding the hands of people who are not present. Pray people around the world that we don't even know, but who are in times of need and trouble, fear or hunger. We pray for those in this room who are in a special need in these moments, whatever that need might be. We pray in a very special way now, Lord, for the Pivoto family tragedy that has come into their life and to the life of those of us who are part of their extended family. We pray in a special way that you will comfort their hearts and strengthen them and use the memorial service tomorrow to bring honor to your name and strength to this family and to this church family and to the family of friends in this community. Lord, we know there are a lot of broken hearts in this room. Not one of us that does not need a refreshing touch of your spirit upon us. We thank you for people who care, for people who share, for people who lift one another up. We thank you, Lord, for lifting us all up by your grace, a grace that is greater than all of our sin, all of our failings and frailties, grace greater than all of our sin. We thank you for what you have done and are doing and will do in and through our lives, to the glory of God, through Christ Jesus our Lord, in whose name we pray, amen. Well, I want to, you know, Jesus was the greatest storyteller that ever lived, and he told the greatest story uh, in all the world. His life was his story. But he told stories, parables we call them, and One reason the Gospel of Luke is my favorite gospel is because it contains what I think are the two finest stories that Jesus ever told. One is the parable of the story of the prodigal son, and the other is the story that I want to talk about today uh, that some children like and have asked me to do it periodically. And that is, as we all like it, the story of the Good Samaritan. Uh, You know it. I've heard it all my life. I, I heard it before I could read it. And so I've known it all my life, but I want to share a few thoughts uh, from it today with the hope that it uh, will help you. It grew out of a situation, as all of Jesus' stories did, it grew out of a situation when a religious leader uh, came up to Jesus. Uh, By the way, it's the 10th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, and if you want to use that pulpit Bible or the Bible in the book rack in front of you there, it's page 1028. 
page 1028. Uh, this uh, religious leader came up to Jesus and said, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, well, what do you say? And he said, well, the greatest commandment is this, thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and the, uh, and, and the neighbor is yourself, and, and the other, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, you have said rightly. And then the man asked the question. He said, who is my neighbor? Now that's the critical question. You're supposed to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love one another. Well, who is my neighbor? So Jesus tells him a story. And he lets the story answer the question. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest, a religious leader, came by going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, another religious figure, another official religious leader in the church of the day in Judaism, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine on him. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for all or any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? So Jesus puts the question back to him. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. There are many, many facets to this story. And I have preached on it many times. And this, what I say today, will not be a duplicate of anything I've said in the past. I've preached on it, I know exactly, eight times in 40 years. I don't plan to preach all eight of them this morning, so uh, you can relax a little bit. Uh, it's important to notice that this event occurred, the story that Jesus told, occurred on a lonely road, on a lonely road where there were no spectators but God. No one else was looking on. There was no one there to either provide stimulus or reproach to the behavior or the actions of any of the persons here. Someone has said a person is what they are in the dark alone. Here's a story about people in the dark, at least alone, with one spectator, and that was God. As I said, I believe last Sunday or recent Sunday, all of us live our life before an audience, an ultimate audience of just one person. Now, they have a lot of other people looking on and watching us and evaluating certain things. But in the final analysis, and I underline the word final, in the final analysis, the ultimate audience before whom we're living life is God himself. He is the only one who counts ultimately, right? We all live ultimately before God and God alone. Well, there are four, four characters in this, in this little play, this little story. They're the robbers. 
Their philosophy was, what's, what's yours is mine and I'm going to take it. And they did. They beat him up, left him half dead. Sometimes circumstances conspire against us and rob us of our joy, our peace, our comfort. Sometimes we trip up ourselves. Starts off and says a certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell. You can stop right there and preach a sermon. And he fell. You can stop right there. In one way or another, there are times when all of us fall. And I don't mean in some horrible, extreme, egregious way. I mean our spirits fall, our hopes fall, our dreams fall, our hearts break. It happens to all of us. All of us at one time or another are listed among the wounded. All of us. The people here this morning who are wounded. Now you may be feeling wonderful. You may just be on the top of the world and everything's going great in your life. But let me promise you that within just a few feet radius, there are people near you on the outside. They're looking good and they're smiling and they're courageous and they're here, but their hearts are breaking. Some here are worried about their jobs. Others concerned about their health. Others here broken with grief. Sooner or later, all of us are in sick bay. We're listed among the wounded. Therefore, we don't need to feel in any way superior to other people. We need to be grateful for the fact that there are other people who, like us, are wounded, and they become to us, as God wants us to be to them, wounded healers. The title of a great book by Henry Nowen, which I would recommend. Wounded Healers. Well, robbed him. You know, I grew up on some wonderful cliches. Some cliches are true, but some cliches are not true. And I grew up on one that I found since becoming an adult that is not true. How many of you heard or grew up on sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never harm me? How many of you grew up saying that? That isn't so, is it? Let me tell you, there's sometimes when I would have taken sticks and stones rather than words, they can cut deep. And especially so to children. Be careful what you say to children. Be careful the language you use when you discipline a child. You're dealing with a tender little heart and a cutting word can stay there and have disastrous consequences years later. Words can hurt. They can also heal. They can also heal. They can be a bomb in Gilead. So in one way or another, we're all wounded. We're not all wounded in the same way, but we're all wounded. And you know, the reason you and I are here today is not because we have been passed up, but we've been picked up. Right? Now I want you... I want us to work at getting over grudges and start thinking about the great things people have done for us. 
We have a tendency at times as human beings to concentrate on someone who hurt us or someone who tripped us or some situation that came along in life that took some of the joy out of life. And we begin to forget all of the tremendous, wonderful things and gracious and marvelous people who have come into our lives to lift us up and to pick us up and to hold us in a time of sorrow or hurt or grief or pain or loneliness and we're on our feet today because other people reached out their hand and said, let me help you up. What are we here for? Martha and I mentioned that this morning, one of our favorite phrases and she reminded me of it as I left the house. What are we here for if not to make life less difficult for each other? George Eliot said it. What are we here for? if not to make life less difficult for each other. May we not rob people of their hope, their dreams, their security, their confidence. May we not be wounders. May we be healers. Now, I don't want to be too hard on this religious crowd. Uh, Jesus was pretty tough on the Pharisees. You, you need to remember that Jesus was on the side of the sinner. Just mark that down. You read through the New Testament. I don't know where you went to church or who you heard preach, whether it's Buck or anybody else. I want you to read through the New Testament and you'll see Jesus is on the side of the hurting. Jesus is on the side of the failing. Jesus is on the side of the sinners. Jesus is there. And sometimes religion isn't. Sometimes it hurts more than it heals. And it wounds more than it soothes. I was thinking driving down here this morning and I pictured you in my mind and was praying and I had no idea who would be here. I just knew there'd be some faces I would know and some I wouldn't. You know when you look at a big crowd like this and there's a wonderful large crowd, we're, we're energized by crowds. We're excited by crowds. But the Bible says when Jesus saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion. He saw them, he said, as sheep without a shepherd. And so every pastor needs to look out on the congregation, and I pray that will be so all over the world today, that those of us who have the awesome responsibility and calling to stand up and try to say a word for God to people in need, that we will see people with compassionate eyes. Caring eyes. I've come to believe that people need more encouragement than they don't need just about anything else. Jesus is on the side of the wounded. In fact, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. He understands what it means to hurt. He understands what it means to be misunderstood by family. He understands what it means to be criticized from the most religious people of the day. He understands that. He's been there. He understands a cross. He understands separation. He understands pain. He understands death in no way, in a way no man will ever understand it until we've gone through it with him. He's on the side of the wounded. He's come to bind up our broken heart. Now, these religious folks, I believe they cared. I just can't believe that these people, I'm, I'm sure they loved God, but they were, 
They were just bound by a religious tradition that made them afraid. They had the, the idea, they, it was their religious laws, that if you touch, they looked at that man over there and they said to themselves, now they were, they were not together, they were alone, but I'm sure this is what they reasoned. Oh, that's terrible. Whatever happened to that poor fellow? Goodness, that's awful. They, they thought he was dead, you see, and if they'd gone over there and touched him, they would have then been contaminated. That was the religious law of the day, unfortunately, that if you touch that dead body, they would have been contaminated and would not have been able to participate in the temple worship services. Their religion kept them from helping a dying man. And their fear paralyzed them. And so they passed by on the other side. I don't believe they were, they hated him and I do not believe they were uninterested. They were just conventional men and a half dead naked man lying beside the road was outside the parameters of their experience. And they didn't know what to do with it. And so they just kind of followed the party line and passed by on the safe side. Now, I want to say a word about evasiveness. And uh, I'm going to talk primarily to members of Trinity. Now, all of you who are guests or visiting with us, I, I want you to sit right there and, and I'm, not, uh, I'm not talking to you. I want to talk turkey to Trinity uh, for just a few moments. Uh, it, it's amazing when you look back on the history of our church. When I came here in 1959, we didn't have this building. We had a little A-frame building down there. It seated about 700 people and we didn't have this children's building. We had an old two-story, had a building there that didn't take care of a handful of children. Uh, we had wooden buildings back down there where that new education building is now where we had Sunday school classes. And, uh, and we had people who said, look, we need, we need to build. We need to build this sanctuary. And we didn't have uh, any money. And we said, well, we're going to do it on faith. And so in 1960, we came into this building. And then a few years later, we ran out of space and that children's building needs to be removed. We tore it down, tore down all of that. We built uh, that big education building back there where hundreds of you were in, in, were in Sunday school and Bible study uh, this morning. We didn't have that youth lounge down there that we have now. We didn't have the rural center that we have now. You know how we got it? We got it because people believed in the future and were willing to go out on a limb and even borrow millions of dollars to provide the blessings that we have today. And I want to tell you what concerns me is we've gotten to the place now in our prosperity and in all that we have here that we have the idea that's sort of permeating some of the leadership of the life of our church that to borrow money is some sort of unforgivable sin. Reminds me of the story of the pilgrims who in 1620 landed on the shores of New England after an arduous journey across the Atlantic. The first year they established a town. The second year, they established a town council. The third year, the town council moved, uh, made a recommendation that they build a road five miles out into the wilderness so the community could grow. And in the fourth year, the citizens tried to impeach the town council because they didn't want to go. People who had come thousands of miles across an ocean didn't want to go five miles into the wilderness. And the same thing's happening right here in Trinity right now. We have the idea that we're, we're going to build this senior adult facility out here. And the idea is we're not going to borrow any money. Let me tell you where we've come from. And this is right from the horse's mouth, J.W. Ford, and right out of our business administrator. 
In the middle 80s, in the mid 80s, we had a budget of $2.6 million. Today we have a budget over $5 million. Keep that in mind. That's a very relative importance, of great importance. It's not relative. Uh, we had a campaign to expand this sanctuary. Uh, you all of you in the balcony, you couldn't be there. And all of you down here and over those outside uh, seats over there wouldn't be there. We expanded this sanctuary and the choir loft. We built the children's building. We got the parking lot across the street. Uh, we put the, got the new organ, architect's fees and all that. All of that together cost us $11 million. Now listen to this. In the 80s, bad times, tough times, $11,865,232. We had a campaign. Total pledges, $7,463,495. Well, we, a lot of people pledged and they, things turned down. They couldn't do it. Couldn't live up to that pledge. Wasn't that they wanted to, but the economy went bad. You remember that. Some of you do. So out of that $7 million plus pledge, we received $6,279,992. So all the old debt and the new debt at the end of 87, the end of 87, was $7,500,000. We have a campaign then to reduce those, that money. And we raised two point. Six million dollars. This left us five million dollars of debt, and that five million dollars of debt has been paid off, is being paid off, and will be paid off completely in 18 months to two years. And people are now saying, We don't want to borrow money. We don't want to borrow money to put a basement in that uh, senior adult facility, which we're going to need because we're already, can already project right now it's going to overflow what we have. Do you know that down there in that new educational building, we don't have enough chairs? We do not have enough chairs. It's like building a new home, not putting a bathroom in there. We do not have enough chairs. Now, you see, when we had two Sunday schools, 915, 1045, people could use the same chair twice. Somebody could be in Sunday school at 915, and then somebody could be in that same chair at 1045. Uh, can't do that now unless they're going to sit in each other's lap. We do not have enough chairs. And a lot of the chairs we have are old. And we lost 250 in the flood that decimated the lower floor of that education building. And people are saying, we're not going to borrow any money to put chairs in that building down there. And that's like going to a hospital and they say, we don't have any beds here. You sleep on the street. What are we here for if not to meet human needs? It's incomprehensible to me that suddenly, now I know there's some folks that are conscientious objectors to borrowing any money. Now, maybe they were able to buy their home with income that their father provided for them. I don't know. Maybe they inherited it. Maybe they won the lottery. If you did, why didn't you tithe it? Uh, <laughs> uh, you may have enough money, some of you in this room, few of you in this room may have enough money to go out and buy an automobile for cash. I can't do that. 95% of the people in this room probably didn't do that. And yet when it comes to the Lord's work, we say, well, don't wanna, we don't want to borrow any money. Don't want to borrow any money. Now, I believe these people are conscientious. I respect them. I think they're wonderful Christians. I just think they're conscientious objectors. And that's Okay. I remember during Vietnam, two men came to me, two young men, and they talked to me. They said they were conscientious objectors. They were not going to go to war in the Vietnam War. And I had counsel with them at length. 
And I went to the draft board twice with each one of them. And the draft board asked me, said, Reverend Fang, do you believe in these conscientious objectors? I said, I do not believe in conscientious objection. I'd go. I'd enlist. I did once. I'd do it again. But I believe they have the right to be conscientious objectors. I believe they have that right. And I would defend that right, even though I don't agree with it. Now, I want to say something to you, Trinity folks. If we let a few conscientious objectors keep us from doing what God wants to do, we can lose the battle of the 21st century. Because let me say to you, if 95% of the people in America in 1941 had been conscientious objectors, we'd be speaking Japanese or German and spending marks or yen right now. We don't win a war with conscientious objectors. Lloyd George, the Prime Minister of Great Britain in 1916, said no army can march on a retreating mind. And I want to say in 1999, no church can march on a retreating mind. No church. You can see I feel deeply about this. Uh, now, I'm, I'm not going to be here long in the 21st century. I don't know how long I'm going to be here, but... It, I'm not talking about me. I'm not talking about what's going to happen while I'm pastor. I'm talking about what's going to happen five years from now, or 10 years from now, 15 years from now. If we don't have the same kind of faith that our forefathers did, if we acted like them, we'd still be having Sunday school classes in dilapidated old school buses out here on the parking lot. And that's what we had. And we got here because people had faith and believed in the future and believed that God's people could face the debt and meet the need. We need to furnish that facility down there so that we can more effectively teach the gospel and we need the space in that senior adult facility so that we can more effectively minister to the fastest growing demographic group in America, namely retired people. Okay, visitors, come back now. I'm going to come back to the... <laughs> come back. Now, I'm, I'm going to make a recommendation that we lay aside that vote that we had at one time that we were not going to borrow money. I think we need to borrow however many hundreds of thousands of dollars or $2 million or whatever it takes to do the job. We don't need to be half hard. My soul, it's amazing what we did in the 80s when the economy was bad and we've never had it better and suddenly we're like those 16, 20 pilgrims up there and I wanted to go five miles into the wilderness. We may have it too good. Our prosperity may be creating a kind of paralysis of attitude. Enough of that. Visitors, come on back. I want to get... This Samaritan showed up. Now let me tell you, Samaritans were hated. They were hated. Boy, they were detested. The Jews wouldn't even go through their country. The Jews called them half-breed dogs because they'd intermarried with their uh, cat their uh, Assyrian captors and so Samaritans were just at the bottom of the social ladder they were detested people of all the people that could logically hate that Jewish wounded fellow a Samaritan would have been the one That's, that Jew wouldn't have even gone through this man's country but it says and I, I love the wording here he saw him he came where the man was 
I mean, he didn't stay off with some sort of detached observation. He had some attached involvement. He came to him. Just like Jesus came to us. Took pity on him. Went to him and bandaged his wounds. Pouring on oil and water. Put him on his donkey. Poured oil and wine in his wounds. Took him to the inn took care of him overnight and paid for his care for the next few days. Three things. His help was personal, it was practical, and it was perpetual. Personal help, practical help, perpetual help. He did all of those. He picked him up. And you know what? He didn't blame him. He didn't blame him. Uh, I had a car wreck in 1963, bad car wreck, down at the corner of McCullough and Elmira. I never go past there, but I don't think about it. And thank God that I survived it. I was driving a little Volkswagen, and a truck ran a red light and hit me, and I lost. Uh, and I ended up in the emergency room at Baptist Hospital, all torn up and nearly dead. And thank God that Bill Roof showed up, cardiovascular surgeon, and when... When the bill showed up, you know what he didn't do? He didn't say, oh, my gosh, Buckner, do you realize how badly hurt you are? You look terrible. Ah, why didn't you get a bigger car, Buckner? Why weren't you watching out better? I mean, no, he didn't blame me. None of the nurses there started saying, why didn't you be, why weren't you more careful? Why weren't you more observant? Nobody blamed me. You know what they did? They touched me. And helped me, and with the help of Almighty God, healed me. When somebody falls, my friend, when somebody gets run over by life, we don't need to come along with some sort of detached observations. Well, you should have known better than to have traveled a lonely road at night. You should have known better than traveling alone. You should have known better than carrying all that money. You should have, you should have. Help him, help him, help him. Don't preach to him, help him. Lift him up. Put arms of love and compassion around him. Well, I come to the conclusion of this, and this may surprise you a little bit. I've said it before. It's been a long time, though. Here's a Samaritan, outsider, an outsider, hated by the Jews, comes along and picks up this fellow and saves him. Now, I want you to see Jesus as our good Samaritan. Now, if you will look in your Bible, if you'll look in that 10th chapter, the word good is not there. Now, it is in the heading of my Bible. It says the parable of the Good Samaritan. But when you read what was actually said, the word good is not there. Society has added that word. We gave the fellow a first name. Good Samaritan. And I don't doubt that he was. But I want to tell you who the really good Samaritan. In John 8, 48, book of John, 8, chapter 48, verse, the religious leaders, the same bunch that passed by this fellow here that Jesus was talking about, the religious leaders in Jesus' day called him a Samaritan. That was the dirtiest word they could call him. That was the most degrading word they could lay on him. He is a Samaritan. They were right. He is a Samaritan. He is a good Samaritan. 
He picks up the wounded, pours the oil of the Holy Spirit and the wine of cleansing. He picks them up and carries them to the end of the wounded. That's the church, the end of the wounded, where you take care of the hurting and the frightened and the broken and the lonely and the discouraged. That's what we're to be. And we need to put some more room in the inn. We need to put some more beds in the inn, some more chairs in the inn, some more facilities in the inn of the wounded so that more people's lives can be blessed by the good Samaritan. I invite you to trust him. You can, you can afford to trust him. He'll pay all the bills of the past. He forgives all of our debts, our sins. He forgives all of them and remembers them against us no more. He never duns us for the gift of salvation. It's a gift. So I invite you to trust him. I invite you to come be a part of this church. Help us be a mighty army marching forward to make a difference in the 21st century. I want this church to be a stronger church, a more effective church, a more loving church, a more powerful, influential church. When my grandchildren are singing in the choir or teaching Sunday school classes and I'm watching from the balcony of heaven, it can be if we will be faithful now do what God wants us to do in this fellowship. Come help us do it. We'll sing God's invitation. I'll be here to greet you. Let's stand. Let's sing. You can.